Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Well, welcome everyone to the Brian Crumby Radio Hour on Saga 960 AM. I have the distinct pleasure uh, tonight to bring you an interview with Jennifer Kiesmat, who is the CEO of the Kiesmat Group, former chief planner for the City of Toronto, former candidate for uh, mayor of Toronto, and uh, formerly a consultant to a group that we're doing a fairly substantial piece of work uh, here in Mississauga on uh, the future of Mississauga. And I probably should say someone who I've looked up to. Um, I actually offered to be your campaign manager at one point in time, uh, but she turned me down and probably that was the that did so. That's going way back. That is. Um, but it was something I offered. Anyway, Jennifer, how are you? Welcome to the Brian Crumby Show. Um, I am doing very well under the circumstances. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm glad to see that you look well. How, uh, how are you uh, dealing with uh, social isolation, uh, stuck in the house with the family, et cetera? Well, um, of course, we're grateful that we're healthy. I think that's a really critical um, starting point and grateful as well that we have had um, clear-eyed, not perfect, but clear-eyed leadership in our country on, on this issue. Um, we're, we're, doing, we're doing pretty pretty good. My daughter's home from university and uh, just imagine moving out of university residence and into quarantine with your mom and dad. Just think of how fun that would be. She reminds us every night at dinner. Um, and uh, my son is doing the distance learning thing, which, you know, he's a very, very active kid. It's been pretty tricky to get him to kind of sit by himself at the kitchen table every day. Um, but we have absolutely nothing to complain about. And we've just been, we've kind of all been putting our putting our nose to the grindstone and just trying to get some work done and stay very focused, hoping that that will assist in passing the time, quite frankly. Do you think that uh, families in general, yours or others, are going to be able to adjust quickly to a, a post-COVID environment? Are they going to be going crazy and want to go see all their friends and never come back and see mom and dad? Or are they going to say, you know what, we actually enjoyed this time with mom and dad? Well, I think it's going to be really different for different families, but I do think that something about our DNA is changing right now. We're getting pretty used to staying at home and pretty used to you know, I've pretty much got four, well, three other human beings that I interact with, and that's it. And it's been that way for weeks and weeks now. And uh, I think it's, I think it's going to take some adjustment to being out in the world, having places to go. Not that we don't want that, but I think we're, I think there's a kind of a pattern that you fall into in this social isolation. And we know, I know we definitely have. I'm I'm much calmer than I probably was the first couple of weeks where I really felt like crazy, like anxious for it to end. And, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty in the beginning as well. And I think we all feel pretty confident that we've been doing the right thing by, by physically distancing and going into isolation. But uh, I don't know. I think, I think we, I think the way we interact is going to change. 
it's it's got to be a huge benefit for you with your family. What's it got to be like for for single people uh, living in a condo in downtown Toronto? It's got to be terrible. You know, I think it's very difficult, and it's important not to underestimate that. Um, I have quite a few friends who live on their own. They live in condos, and it's been very difficult getting up in the morning, staying positive. Not you know weeks and weeks of not actually physically you know touching another human being um going into the grocery store yes but not touching anyone not hugging your parents or your best friend i i think it's i think it's pretty difficult and this is a lot that has been asked of people and i hope that we'll be really prudent in how we think about what comes next to ensure that we're really taking care of all of the needs that that people have emotional social health because there's a lot of needs that need to be addressed for us to be healthy one of the 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 questions i've had and the frustrations i've had is the restrictions on accessing parks Um, because i think that getting out into nature and walking and uh and exercising and just sort of uh you know seeping in vitamin d and uh, the energy from nature and trees is so critically important and uh, we can't it would appear government doesn't think trust people to do it in a safe environment in a safe way without being within six feet of other people that they don't live with. Do you think that was the right decision? I've never supported that decision for a whole variety of reasons, but the very basic reason being that our entire society is based on trust. Um, Every single thing we do, um, all the spaces that we share, the fact that we allow people to get in cars and drive powerful vehicles that can be very dangerous is based on trust. There's always going to be outliers who break that trust, but I think social distancing um, and the compliance that we've seen has demonstrated that the vast majority of people care about the broader public and care about the public interest and uh, will do what is in the public interest. Restricting access to parks, in some ways, from my perspective, is a breaking of a fundamental social contract, particularly in cities. We need to be building our immunity right now. We need to be getting as healthy as possible. Uh, The next six months are going to be very difficult for all of us as we really build up immunity. We need to be as strong as possible, being physically active, having fresh air, as you say, vitamin D, access to sunlight. It's critical to strengthening our own immunity. And parks are being closed for one reason. We're not trusting the majority of the public to do the right thing. I don't think you can run a society that way. I don't think you can run a culture that way. And in this instance, it goes against the objective of public health. It's in the interests of public health to make sure people are exercising and having access to trees and nature and fresh air. So um, I've never supported that decision. I think it's wrongheaded and I don't think it's in the public interest. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And so thank you very much for saying it so eloquently. We're going to take a break for uh, traffic and messages and come back more with uh, Jennifer Keysmat. And uh, I understand she's got some uh, fairly strong views on how urban life is going to change, how cities are going to change. And so we're going to go to that just after the break. Stay with us. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Welcome back to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour Saga 960. We're chatting tonight with Jennifer Kiesmet, CEO of the Kiesmet Group. And as many of you will remember, a uh, candidate for mayor 
um, and uh, and as former uh, chief city planner for the city of Toronto, I uh, have the pleasure of being chairman of something called Transit Alliance, a civic advocacy group uh, in Toronto, and have uh, had the honor of having uh, Jennifer come and speak to my group on several occasions, and she's wowed us with her frankness, with her honesty, with her uh, forthrightness, with her knowledge, deep knowledge of urban issues um, and uh, and transit issues. And then I also had the pleasure when I was uh, chairman uh, and founder of the Mississauga City Summit of having Jennifer uh, come to the city of Mississauga and uh, be a coordinator of a planning process that had over, I think it was 100,000 people involved in. And she up on stage, standing, coordinating everything, um, did a, an incredible job as the facilitator, as the planner, as uh, someone to inspire us all. And so, um, Jennifer, it's a pleasure to, uh, to chat with you again. Those are so many nice things that you just said. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I mean them all. I mean them all. <laughs> Jennifer, I understand you've got some uh, reasonably definitive, strong views on how uh, sort of we're going to come out of this from an urban standpoint, that COVID-19 is actually going to change the way that we're going to be organizing our cities. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think we need to begin by thinking in a few different phases. There's the moment right now, which has its own characteristics for most of us. That means social social isolation, staying at home, ensuring we maintain physical distancing, really only leaving the house to shop and not really for any other reason. That's the right now. Then there's going to be a transition phase, the in-between phase. That could go on for a while. That could go on for a year. Uh, It really is probably, it's going to end when we have a vaccine or we have herd immunity. We don't know when that will be, but it will go on for a little while. And then there's the after phase. And I think when we talk about what's happening in cities, we have to talk about all three of those phases. Because in the right now, we need to make sure, just as we are talking about parks, that we're providing the public spaces that people need so that they can be outside while maintaining physical distancing. That's the right now. In the in-between phase, we have to be thinking about how we're beginning to transition our economy. We're beginning to transition back to working again. And that means we need to think really carefully about how we can be opening up Main Street businesses, how we can be opening up uh, uh, small shops, uh, Main Streets in our cities that, quite frankly, aren't going to last too much longer if they continue to be closed. And in that in-between phase, We want to open things up, but we also want to make sure that physical distancing can be maintained. And a really big part of that, we can see clues from other places in the world. In Germany, for example, restaurants have opened up, but there's social distancing in physical distancing in those restaurants, a big X on every other seat. You can sit with your family, but you have to be uh, physically distanced from other people within the restaurant. So there's things that we need to be planning for right now in order to ensure that we begin to transition and we transition well into that in-between phase. So if we don't have do- uh, big plexiglass uh, barriers between different tables or booths or every second or third table empty, what, what do you think is going to happen in restaurants? Well, I think a few things have to happen. One is we need significantly more testing. We need to make sure that people who are sick or who have any symptoms at all are in the hospital. They shouldn't be walking around. They shouldn't be going going home. That's going to be really critical. And then we need need physical distancing. We need to be apart from each other. Uh, In Lithuania, they've just announced a plan where all of the public squares, where there's a restaurant, they're going to be opening up the public squares so that 
restaurant owners can put tables in the square with a distance between the tables. You can walk into the square, sit down at your table. You'll of course be interacting with your server. The servers need to be tested in order to be working in the restaurants, but you won't be sitting close to any of the other, other patrons. So from a city planning perspective, this means we have to use space in a different way. In Europe, you've got lots of squares. You can do this kind of thing. In the Canadian context, we've got to look at our streets and our roads and how we can use our streets and our roads differently. Uh, in Toronto, the roads are pretty empty, as they should be, because people are staying home. They're not getting in the car and driving to work. You're not doing your long commute. Uh, what this means is we should be thinking about how we use those streets in a fundamentally different way in order to open up access to local retailers, open up access to restaurants, while ensuring that we're not compromising on the physical distancing piece. Do you think people in the City of Toronto and the Planning Department are thinking about this right now? Uh, I don't know that they are. I think they need to be. I also think that across Canada, we need to be talking about this. Uh, you think about a place like Port Credit. How long in Port Credit can those businesses go being completely shut down? I don't know. They might have another month left. They might have two months or three months, but they definitely don't have six. Uh, so it raises really important questions for our urban hubs, our most pedestrian environments, where people walk, where people uh, typically shop on foot. How can we make sure that those places are places when we can go? Look, everybody's going to Costco right now. We're shopping at Costco right now. Costco's open and they've implemented excellent social distancing measures. But there's no reason why we can't use our streets and our sidewalks to implement social distancing measures in places like Port Credit or in downtown Guelph, uh, just as we could do in downtown Toronto. A lot of these places were quite vulnerable before the pandemic, a lot of our main streets. And we want to be, we don't want people to be staying away from them. We need to be attracting people to these areas. It's all about having a walkable urbanism. And the risk is that if we don't have a plan and if we haven't communicated a plan, a lot of these business owners are just going to throw in the towel. And really, that's not good for cities. So let me give you um, an example. So in Port Credit uh, and lots of other places around, what they do is uh, in uh, the warmer months, they allow you to take over the first lane of, uh, of the street. Actually, they take you over the sidewalk um, and move the sidewalk out into the first lane of the street. So we're effectively reducing the amount of, uh, of uh, street uh, area by two lanes, one lane on each side, and put tables out on uh, the sidewalks or out on the uh, on the on the on the roads. Um, and people are building nice wooden structures to uh, to separate you out from the cars, etc. That said, in the past they've all been crammed together, and so why not do it? Why not allow people to take up uh, one lane of road, but doing it with your uh, your manner of either social distancing or little plexiglass. You know, I go to a grocery store and there's plexiglass now between mm -hmm. me and the cash register. I think of my some of my favorite restaurants. Uh, they've got booths. You could put plexiglass up uh, behind uh, the, the different booths. You could absolutely do that. And that might be a viable solution. Um, I know that's what they did in Singapore and Taiwan. Kids never stayed home from school. They simply put plexiglass between the students and if you look at a place like uh, uh, like Singapore, they've had a very, very low rate of infection and a very low rate, I think they might even have zero deaths. 
they literally put plexiglass between the students at school as a way of maintaining social distancing. So I think that, that's the kind of thinking that we need in order to get our restaurants and our main street stores up and running again. Your point about taking over a lane, that's exactly the kind of solution that just needs to be adapted a little bit for a post-COVID-19 world, which might mean, hey, let's take over more lanes, let's take over parking lots, Let's encourage people to walk. People are generally walking more than they ever have. Uh, let's encourage more people to walk and let's take over more of that space to protect those critical amenities that really keep our city humming. The truth is right now we're shopping more than we ever have because we aren't eating out as much. Unfortunately, we're not shopping in our main streets. We're not shopping in those local places because they haven't quite been set up for it. Let's set them up for this transition so that they don't disappear from our neighborhoods. Okay, great um, suggestions and I hope that's implemented. What else is gonna change? Uh, what about uh, transit? Are we gonna be getting on buses and subways and GO trains as much in the future? Well, again, you've gotta look at those three phases that I outlined in the beginning. Right now, really, you've only got essential workers that are taking transit. Everyone else is staying off as they should. In the in-between phase, I think we're going to have to see a situation where there's severe restrictions put on how many people can ride on a bus at a time or how many people can access the subway at a time. The old days of cramming as many people as possible, you know, where you're nose to nose uh, during rush hour, that's not going to do in that in-between phase. So there's going to have to be a higher level of service because you can accommodate less people on each bus or on each train. The problem is that's very costly, but it's essential. So I think we have to assume that that's going to be the case in that in-between phase. And I would also add that part of how we're going to get through the in-between phase is that people who can, I think that's probably you and that's probably me, are going to have to stay home as much as possible so that we save those services for people who absolutely must go into the office and must be using public transit. So there's going to have to be a combination. It's not going to be like okay, now we're all going back to work. We're all moving around the city how we used to. There's going to be an in-between phase where we have to evaluate, is, this, is it essential for me to get on transit? Should I be saving that space for someone who really, really needs it? If I can do this meeting on Zoom, we're all now Zoom experts. <laughs> We've got the skills now. Um, if I can do this meeting on Zoom, I should do this meeting on Zoom. I think that's what the in-between phase looks like. The last phase... What's going to happen to uh, downtown Toronto office space? Is it going to be uh, far less demanded of? Honestly, I think there's going to be a massive recalibration for a couple of reasons. We were already moving towards a different way of working. And years ago, 10 years ago already, in, in my planning and design firm, we did a lot of video conferencing. We sometimes did meetings with the entire office. We had 500 employees. We would do them on video conferencing uh, a, a decade ago, but it wasn't mainstream. And it was considered kind of a compromised way to conduct business, really, in general. I think what's happened is that using Zoom, doing things virtually has become normalized. And as a result, we simply aren't going to need to travel as much. We're not going to need to be in the same room as much as we did in the past. So it opens up an opportunity for rethinking 
how every one of us works. It used to be that working from home really meant you were, you know, sipping tea in your pajama on your bed all day. Uh, I think now we've accepted that real work gets done from home. Many of us, you're probably in the same boat. I'm working longer hours than I ever have because my day sort of never ends. Um, I think we've accepted working from home as a very legitimate way to conduct business. And that will change demand for office space. You're going to see a lot more flex space. You're going to see people who learned how to manage their teams remotely. So they're not going to need to see their teams in person every day. I think you'll see a really downward pressure on office space in the core of cities. We had this real trend away from private offices to cubicles. Do you think it's going to go back to private offices? This is so interesting to me because you're right. We had been moving into this more open concept approach where you work at a big table or you sit on a couch and you work the whole kind of we work model, which is all about sharing spaces and sharing surfaces. Um, there's a really interesting comparative analysis that was done in China of two office buildings. And in one office building, there was an outbreak. And in the other office building, there wasn't an outbreak. And uh, a researcher, this is just hot off the press. Uh, uh, I read about this just a few days ago. What was very interesting about it is that the office that had the outbreak, the building that had the outbreak, they discovered a couple of things. The outbreak was actually limited to two floors in the building. So can, they, they were able to conclude the contagion did not happen through the short interactions in the elevator. That was not a, a um, impactful environment. People weren't actually catching it from being in an elevator together. But they were catching it being on the same floor. And in both of the floors where they had a very high rate of contagion, they were open concept and there was a very high density of people. So people were working very close together all day long. So I think there's some clues there and this implication that you've raised that we might be rethinking shared spaces and the desirability of having a cubicle in your own space. Hopefully we'll design them better than we did in the 80s. But I think that's something that is going, you're going to see that reappearing. If this early evidence holds, there's no reason uh, not to believe this analysis. It was done by a researcher at Boston University. If the analysis holds, if we see more cases like that, it means we don't need to be afraid of elevators, but working in shared spaces in really close proximity, sitting beside someone for a long period of time can be a way that transmission takes place. Well, that's, a, that's interesting because I was worried that uh, there would be a real trend away from downtown condominium apartment living uh, and people were, because of fear of lobbies and elevators and in, in SARS, there was some proof that uh, the virus uh, went up and down pipes. Um, and, uh, and then people would go back to the desire for suburban single family dwellings. What do you think is going to happen there? I guess if it only happens uh, not in elevators, but within uh, high density confined uh, office environments, then condominiums aren't a problem. Well, yeah, and this is a really important question that you've raised, Brian, because currently there's been no connection established between density and levels of contagion. And interestingly, some of the cities in the world that have done the best job at restricting and limiting the spread of the virus are also the densest in the world. Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, they've all done to varying degrees really good jobs at restricting 
uh, through public policy, the amount of spread, even though they're super, super high density cities. In fact, I think those four might be on the top 10 in, in the world. For like sure, Singapore and Hong Kong spots. are the densest cities. The hot spots are New York City, Milan, Toronto, Wuhan, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, but interestingly, um, Manhattan is not, it's actually in the outlying areas, it's not, Manhattan's the densest part of New York. So you do have to drill down in the, into the data and see where this is happening, which is why I liked this comparative analysis in Asia, because it looked, it didn't just go, oh, wow, there's an office building where there was a huge outbreak. It actually did the analysis of who in that building and where did they work? And that's how they were able to determine, oh, wait a minute, it was actually limited to two floors. So if you looked at the overall percentage in the building, it was very high. But then when you looked specifically at where the outbreak was within that building, it was just two floors of like a 60-story building where the outbreak took place. So you do have to kind of drill down to understand the implication uh, of the spread in dense environments. You know, our spread has been primarily over 60% of the deaths sadly, in the Canadian context, have been in seniors' homes. It's, it's such a travesty. It's just terrible. It is. And, and many of those homes, they're not in dense environments. Like, the city they're in isn't dense. But obviously, in a senior's home, there's a tremendous amount of sharing of amenity. There's a shared place to eat. The nurses are going from one room to the next. So, uh, you know, I think those are some important clues for us that you know, density, I would argue, is a part of a healthful solution in cities. It's not It's not the problem. We're chatting with Jennifer Kiesmat uh, about uh, the future of cities, uh, really, uh, with COVID-19. We're going to take a break for traffic and message and be right back with her. Stay with us. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca. Well, welcome back to the Brian Crabby Radio Hour. We're on Saga 960. We're chatting tonight with Jennifer Kiesmat, CEO of the Kiesmat Group, uh, former chief uh, planner for the city of Toronto. Uh, and someone who I think extremely highly of, and she's one of the, I think, the foremost thinkers about cities and urban planning where uh, cities are going. She's been walking us through, number one, the impact right now, number two, the impact of COVID sort of as we uh, as we open up. But then, uh, Jennifer, you said there was a third stage, which I presume is uh, the long-term impact on uh, on urban urban environments. What do you, you think is going to change in the way we design our cities in the future? 
Well, I think the first thing to say is that when we talk about that, the, the farthest away phase, it's of course the most speculative. Um, but I think the most important uh, framing of that conversation is really to recognize that um, at the end of the day, we're going to choose the implications this has for our city. Like we're going to choose how we design our transit in light of COVID-19. We're going, that's a choice that we have to make. We haven't made that choice yet. We need to think it through really carefully. We're going to choose the way we design our communities. And I'm a proponent of complete walkable neighborhoods where it's possible to do a whole variety of things within walking distance of home. And so I think one of the great things that we've learned and that we've seen in the context of social isolation, if you can say there's a great thing, I, I, I think I, I have to be careful in how I talk about that. But one of the things that we've seen is that I think a lot of us have kind of realized both the good things and the constraints of our own neighborhoods. You know, we're pretty aware right now if our sidewalks are too narrow, if there's not enough sidewalks. We're really aware right now if you can't get to a ravine or a great green space from your home and you have to get in the car and drive, but oh wait, they blocked off the parking lots, you're not allowed to do that. You become aware of that really, really quickly. You know, it's, it's so how often I've been out for a walk and people have had to step off the sidewalk onto the street. So we feel like we're six feet apart. Um, you're right. The sidewalks aren't wide enough to be socially distant if you're passing people. Well, and you know, people like me have spent the past 20 years of my career saying we need wide sidewalks. We need wide sidewalks for seniors. We need them for children. We need them for safety. Our roads don't need to be so wide. Make the roads narrower, but make the sidewalks wider, put in a buffer. Now I feel like we're kind of having our day, right? Like this is a moment where all of a sudden a lot of people who I think have heard us talking about that are now going, oh, I see the problem here. <laughs> I see the problem with not having enough park space in a really dense environment. So I'm hoping that in this third phase, we can recalibrate our cities to go deeper into a better form of urbanism, that we will create better neighborhoods with better amenities for people that are designed for scenarios where we are spending a lot of time in our neighborhoods, uh, where we've designed better park spaces, where there's more room, recognizing that that's a, a really critical part of livability is getting the sidewalk space right, the design of the parks, the relationship of the park to the neighborhood, that all those things are a really important part of our quality of life. You and I have had this conversation before, uh, or debate, frankly, because I've had uh, disagreements with you in the past. One of the things that makes our urban environment so dynamic is the fact that you end up interacting, whether it's in business or social life, with people from across the whole metropolitan area. Are you going uh, in, in the direction of a, almost a balkanization into sort of little communities and villages um, where we only live and work within a small neighborhood and we no longer have the benefit of the whole metropolitan region for the, the dynamism, the, uh, the networking, the social interaction, the creativity that comes, the, you know, the great operas and uh, ballets and hockey games that you can't afford if you're only going to things within your own little neighborhood? I think it's really important to distinguish between amenities that are neighborhood-based and then there's citywide amenities and then regional amenities. Well, and some are even national. The Raptors are a national amenity. <laughs> the Raptors are owned across this entire country and I'm totally for that. 
Um, I, but I think it's important to think of a series of different scales. And ideally, what we want is a certain number of things to be happening at our neighborhood level. Some things will happen regionally, and then some things will happen more broadly. Hey, look, I'm sitting in Midtown Toronto right now. You're sitting in Mississauga. But we're having a great conversation. We're exchanging ideas. We're generally agreeing. I may be doing too much talking. But we are, in fact, connecting. So you can connect in a variety of different ways. And of course, this I, I would never characterize it as you know, living in a little bubble. And the internet is fabulous for that. And Zoom and all these other technologies are fabulous for that. But there's some things that it would just be better if we could do them more in our neighborhoods, if we had to move less. I've never heard someone say, man, I love my long commute. Well, what happens if we design our cities so that we still have all those regional benefits, we have all those ways of connecting. You know, you wanna to go to a baseball game, it's easy to hop on transit and get to a baseball game, but you don't have to be spending four hours a day getting in a car and driving. It's not sustainable, it's a pretty challenging, uh, way to live on an everyday basis and maybe if we move deeper into planning our neighborhoods with more density and a better mix of uses more people will have more choices in terms of being able to live a little bit deeper in their neighborhoods not at the exclusion of diversity or at the exclusion of cultural events and venues that we will always travel for and that we should travel for but just to take that edge off the assumption that a long commute is going to offer a high quality of life I think so, we've made a mistake in thinking that. Um, you know, I think you're right in that regard, and I don't uh, miss my long commute in any way, shape, or form. But I miss my downtown Toronto business uh, lifestyle. Uh, so, you yeah. know, I'm reasonably productive from my home office, um, and I do love my local neighborhoods, and there's no question about that. I love Port Credit. I love uh, some of the different places around here, uh, restaurants and uh, small shops. Uh, I don't buy my meat at Costco. I go to a local wonderful little meat shop that's still open, and and uh, is very sanitary. But, um, you know, when I, when I interact with people on Zoom or FaceTime or whatever, it, it's, it's very targeted. It's, it's, I've organized it and we're going to do it. Uh, I miss that sort of the, the bumping into, uh, the collision mm -hmm. that happened uh, in, the, in the path uh, or on the streets. Uh, my office is in a tower at uh, Fronton Bay. And, uh, you know, at lunchtime, if not every day, probably almost every day, I bumped into someone I know, I had a good conversation and came that, uh, from that came business or a new opportunity or an event or a, a something or other. I do miss uh, the, uh, you know, going to the different events uh, from a speaking standpoint downtown, some of which I can do on Zoom, but you know, they're not nearly it's as It's not good. the same. Um, and the questions that I can hear other people asking, you know, the back and forth of uh, the question sessions just aren't the same. Um, so there's something about the social interaction that one gets in a dynamic downtown urban environment that I worry about, are we gonna lose it? I don't think we'll lose it. I don't think we'll lose it because I think there's a lot of people like you and me who actually love it. And um, I think it might change a little bit, but I don't think we'll lose it because I think there's so much value to proximity. I think it might change a little bit though. I think it might not, it might be a little less intense. Um, but I also think that, look, not everyone's the same. Some people are super happy staying at home. I think people like you and me, we're pretty social. We like to be out in the world. I love those interactions and I'm the same way. When I step outside of my office, I always bump into someone that I know. And I love that about being in the city. It's why I live in the city. I love that about getting on transit. The exact same thing happens in this city, which I think 
is pretty cool in a city of 2.9 million people. And something is lost when those interactions don't happen. I think that there will be, however, more choices for adding a bit more diversity in terms of how we work. That doing some meetings on Zoom, maybe not going into the office every day. But I also think there's going to be people, and you might be one of them, Brian, who wants to go in every single day, that you're calibrated that way. I do think there'll be a bit more variety. I think that variety will give people more choices and hopefully will lessen um, the environmental impact of all the commuting that we've been doing in our cities, which is which is pretty onerous. But I think that this isn't about less choice for the future. It's about more choices for more people. And you might be in that category where you want to be in the office every day. And if you do, like, please do that. I think that's a good thing. I think I'll be a 50-50 person. I've actually well, liked a bunch of things about being at home. <laughs> Beirut Lebanon has got an interesting uh, policy that you may, may be aware of. What they're doing as they open up is they're only allowing you to travel half time uh, in the city. That yeah. uh, depending on your license plate, if it's an odd license plate or an even license plate, you're allowed to go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday versus Monday, Wednesday, Friday versus Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And uh, that not only applies to going into work, it applies to shopping, it applies to everything. So they're cutting down their traffic by half and forcing people to stay at home half the time. You know, it's funny that you say that because Paris is doing something similar where when they open up, you will be allowed to travel 100 miles from your home, but not farther. You will need permission to travel farther. But I actually thought about, we started out talking about parks. If there's concern about too many people in parks, why not do that kind of a plan with parks that, you know, if you live on the west side of the street, you use the parks on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and you live on the east side of the street, you use the parks on the, the other days. Like, if we need to calibrate, that kind of goes into that in-between stage that I was talking about. I think what Lebanon done, has done is a very clever and smart way to mitigate the impact of too many people being in a limited amount of space in the city. We should do the same things with parks. It's a powerful and important idea to kind of begin to transition people into public space. What's the future of the regional mall? What's going to happen to the Eaton Center, to Yorkdale, to, uh, to Sherway and Square One? Well, first of all, they have to survive what's happening right now. And I think it's going to be tricky. Um, I saw a predicted vacancy rate for the Eaton Center that didn't look very good. Uh, very high vacancy if this goes on for a couple more months. Um, I think that they will thrive over the long term. Uh, I, I really do. But I think that um, there's going to have to be some mitigating of the crowding in the absence of a vaccine. Look, it's possible that a year from now we have a vaccine and this is just not a problem anymore. Like we just go on living the way we lived before. And the good news is every other, every country on earth will be much better prepared for the next pandemic. And it's important to note that Hong Kong and Singapore have had very little contagion and deaths precisely because they've been well prepared. Our lack of preparedness is one of the reasons things have been so bad. Imagine if our seniors' homes were better prepared, we wouldn't see all of the deaths that we've seen in this country. I had a, so, a person from a hospital union on who said that uh, uh, Hong Kong and Singapore learned from SARS and implemented the changes yes. and that we forgot about the Campbell Commission and didn't learn from SARS. Well, we know that's true. So I think that looking at the incredible impacts that this is having at a very basic level, 
let's say we have a vaccine and we have preparedness, then we never have to be in this situation that we're in right now. We're in this situation because we haven't had preparedness and we didn't have a vaccine. So I don't think that history will repeat itself. I think the damage that's been done uh, broadly to the economy, but also the lost lives, the incredible, incredible difficulty this has presented for families with children, um, for many other vulnerable communities means we will be smarter and this won't happen again. Uh, so it could be that, you know, the Eaton Centre over time and other regional malls, they will have to reboot. They're going to have a difficult time through this deep recession or even depression, um, but they'll reboot and they'll be in a position where they won't have to deal with this situation a second time. You and I have been uh, big proponents of transit uh, in the past. Um, I've got uh, Phil Verster, the CEO of Metrolinx, coming to an event uh, in a week's time for Transit Alliance on uh, May the 14th. I'd love it if you'd uh, attend. Uh, it's a virtual event. I'd love to. <laughs> um, what would you like me to ask Phil Verster, the CEO of Metrolinx, in regards to what's going to happen to transit? Oh, wow. Well, I think that I'm when I there's a couple things I'm very curious about. One is that um, in London, England, they have in fact developed a disinfectant that they can clean a surface with this disinfectant and it stays disinfected for up to 30 days. That seems to me like a really clear game changer in terms of building public confidence that we can keep transit really safe particularly in that in-between stage. Um, I'm wondering about uh, the strategy that Metrolinx has to build confidence. And I think that's what that disinfectant does. How do you build confidence um, in transit users to bring them back? That would be kind of my first question. The second is uh, I'm very curious about a strategy that um, is equitable at a regional scale to ensure that those who need access to transit the most, and in particular, uh, essential workers and service workers, as we're in that in-between stage, um, what kind of a strategy has been in place to ensure that they're prioritized on transit, quite frankly, and that people like you and I, even though we're itching to get downtown, will in fact hang back and ensure that we're allowing those who need transit most to use it to get to work to support the broader functioning of society. I think, I think really I'm, I think the questions about the in-between stage are really big ones for transit agencies. They have to weather a crazy storm. And I'm curious about that, the confidence and how we'll ensure we're building confidence and then how we're prioritizing access to transit for those who need it most. I heard uh, the CEO of uh, the TTC say that revenue was down something like 80 or 85%. Yeah, and you know, it really points to the risks in a system where you rely so deeply on fare box revenue for operation because services or fare box revenue is down, but we need to maintain the level of service because it's an essential service in the city. And I would like to see our federal government declare transit as an essential service and put long-term funding in place to continue to operate it, even if it isn't profitable, even if it isn't generating the revenue that we'd like to see on the books. If we recognize it as an essential service like healthcare, then you put excellent funding in place, you declare it essential, and you make sure it's resourced to operate as a government service. 
as well, opposed to a user-based service. You know, it is interesting uh, during this pandemic that uh, we've defined essential services as uh, as LCBO cashiers, uh, store cashiers, um, truck drivers, uh, as well as uh, healthcare workers. It, it has been fascinating for me. We're having a good conversation with you. It has. Uh, this evening, we're going to take a break for traffic and messages and come back for a couple of final minutes. Stay with us. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Well, what a fascinating evening tonight, chatting with Jennifer Kiesmat, CEO of the Kiesmat Group, former uh, uh, candidate for mayor of uh, Toronto. I hope uh, she'll be a candidate for something again in the future. I've heard lots of rumors about that, so I won't ask you about that right now. But remember, <laughs> I volunteer to work for you, knock on doors or whatever it is in the future, <laughs> if you uh, go and do something. Um, and um, former chief planner for the city of Toronto, and, and the conversation we've had, uh, you know, really... It's evident, um, Jennifer, how much you think about cities and the future of cities. So we just finished talking about transit. Um, one of my concerns is that uh, people feel safe in their cars and they're going to go back to car usage dramatically. They're not going to get on the GO train. They're not going to get on the subway. They are going to go back to work, but they're going to go back to work in cars and our commutes are going to be far worse than they were previously. What do you think about that? Well, I think that would be a disaster. Um, the mayor of Paris has come out very strongly and talked about the relationship between the spread of COVID-19 and uh, pollution. And of course, it's a respiratory disease and pollution is something that affects our respiratory systems. And she's actually talked about how part of a recovery must be about creating a walking and cycling oriented city. I think we can see some clues from Milan, Barcelona, New York City, Oakland, California, cities that have actually said, you know what, let's take this moment and go deeper into our urbanism. Deeper into our urbanism means let's create better cities for walking, better cities for transit, better cities for cycling. More than 50% of trips in Canada are within five kilometers of home. Five kilometers is an easily cyclable distance. Most Canadians in Toronto, it's something like 82% own bikes. But one of the reasons why people don't use a bike to get around is because they don't feel safe. Well, let's, let's not make more room for cars. Let's actually go in the opposite direction and make cycling a real transportation option. Uh, that would be a great response to COVID-19 and a great response to being able to push forward more sustainable, more resilient cities in the future. So, you know, there's a fork in the road. We can go one way or the other. My hope is that Canadian cities go the Paris, Milan, Barcelona way and uh, not the way of the 1950s. I do a fair amount of travel in my work. Uh, I go to Montreal. De Maisonneuve has a whole lane that they actually separate out by big curbs for uh, bikes. And uh, the bike use goes up dramatically. And I, I asked someone uh, there why. And they said one of the reasons why is when you're, when you're separated by cars by just a painted lane, you don't feel safe. But when you're separated by a, uh, you know, a five-inch uh, concrete curb, you feel safe. And then uh, Paris. Uh, you mentioned Paris. Paris takes one of the major highways that's right along the Seine um, and closes it down. I'm not sure if it's Saturday or Sunday, or maybe it's just Sunday, um, for people to walk, uh, to bike, to rollerblade, uh, to skate, etc., cetera, uh, roller skate, and, uh, and it gets packed. Now, this is just in the summer, but it just gets packed. One of my most favorite activities 
is biking along the Don Valley Parkway and the Gardner on the annual uh, uh, mm -hmm. ride for a uh, heart that they do. Why don't we do something like that? Why don't we close down some lanes and put in some concrete barriers and why don't we close down on Sunday some roads and let people get out and enjoy them and see how biking, cycling, um, rollerblading, et cetera, can be enjoyable and a way to get places. That should be the future of our cities, Brian. That's exactly what we ought to be doing. That's the way that we can really identify, that's my dog coming in the room. Uh, that's the way that we can um, begin to identify with the future city. A lot of people have been walking and cycling over the course of the past month, over the course of the past five weeks, and have been getting a feel for it. Now let's put the infrastructure in place that when we do start rebooting our cities, that they still feel safe doing it. That's really the opportunity before us. And I think you know, Paris is a really good example. Washington, D.C. has just done the same thing with the with the Jersey barriers. Jennifer Kiesmat, CEO of the Kiesmat Group, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for your ideas. And thank you for the ideas that I know you have and will have that will change for the better Canadian cities. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Brian. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Have a nice evening. Good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on Saga960AM.ca. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.